Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 162nd episode of the Truth Island podcast. Perhaps one of the saddest things that a human being can become is apathetic. Apathy strikes at just about every domain that there is in life, from where we work, to our families, to the nation we live in, and even our impression of humanity itself. As we get older and face more disappointments in life, the hands of apathy tend to become even stronger in the way that they can take a hold of us. Repeated attempts at trying and failing at something can lead even the best of men into despair. Some might even argue that apathy is a way of surviving in this world as people tend to guard their emotions, hopes, and dreams far more when they know there is a high probability of disappointment or they are faced with a set of circumstances that is unlikely to change anytime soon. While apathy protects from the pain of short-term rejection, it is often the first step on the voyage towards depression and a life that doesn't amount to all that much. For example, if someone truly believed that the world was destined to remain the same or never to improve, an argument could be made, why exactly should anyone start a family when the same generation cycle of misery is likely to continue ad infinitum. What's paradoxical about most people's apathy is that they tend to remain cynical about the events and characters in their lives, and yet still seem to complete the motions required of everyday life. A man may not care for his job, and yet he still wakes up and goes there. A mother may not believe in her children, and yet she still sends them off to school and tells them that they can achieve anything. In some ways, we have become a species that believes nothing ever improves, and yet our actions would appear that we believe otherwise. Joining me to help solve the mystery of the apathetic human, I am once again joined by Kenny. Kenny, I'm gonna give you a chicken or egg question. Do you believe it's humanity's apathy that results in things not changing, or do you believe a world that doesn't change causes humans to be apathetic? I think it's neither. Neither? Okay, let's go ahead and hear this out. I don't think that our apathy stops the world from changing, um, because, I mean, the world changes regardless of us. Now, if you're talking about you know, it depends on what kind of change you're talking about, but uh, it's about technological advancements or ideological advancements and that kind of thing. Well, apathy is a change in something. It's you were interested, you're no longer interested. That's a change. And that kind of change brings it, it's a natural progression of a, if people become, the nation becomes, you know, um, um, if, the, if the nation becomes more pathetic, it's a change in of itself. Now, the changing nature of the world actually should do the opposite for us. It should make us more interested in the world because it's, it's fantastic that things are changing. It's, it's, it, 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 it's, it's really, now you say, and this is either naturally, technologically, ideologically, it should, it should stimulate us and not deaden us. The thing, what I think, you know, what I think causes apathy is not necessarily on the outside of things in the sense of it's not from the outside in it's from the inside in, it's from the inside to the inside so i think it happens when um human beings meets and it happens usually as a certain age it happens when human beings meet a, a certain roadblock 
in their minds and in their hearts and their psyche where everything that used to interest you all of a sudden stops interest you know you stop being interested in them or you find you stop they stop appealing being they stop appealing themselves to you and uh, that happens a lot with depression happens a lot with anxieties happens a lot with um um, it's, it's usually about around the age of 16 onwards, things just kind of start dying. And I think it's, uh, now here's, here's where I was talking to a friend about this a couple of days ago. We we're talking about how there are two types of prisons. There's a prison that, you know, <clears throat> or two, kind, yeah, two types of dystopian futures, prisons. The first one is, it's a dystopian future, obvious and obvious. Books are burned one state governments, one person, you know, the big brother, right? Big brother is in charge and big brother's watching you. And another type of dystopian future is uh, it's a more internal dystopian future, not where the books are burned, but nobody wants to read the books. I think he puts it, put it as a Huxleyan future where nobody, the books on burns, but nobody has any interest in reading those books. The brave like, new world kind of future, yeah. Yeah. And so what happens is, what happens is we're living in that kind of a future where we're not really, we're living in that kind of world where we're not really chained. We're not really forced to go here nor there. Um, our freedom is relatively free. One may argue even the freest anywhere, but with all that freedom, we don't do much with it. And uh, we're, we find that our chains are not on the outside but our chains are unfortunately in the most difficult place to be set free on the inside. I think that's remarkably uh, well said. And I think you're right. I think that of the two uh, dystopian, maybe three. So we have Ray uh, Bradbury who wrote uh, Fahrenheit uh, 451, I believe. And then we have Orwell who wrote 1984. And then we have Hugsley who wrote uh, Brave New World. Mm -hmm. And I think probably Hugsley got it closest because it, let's say the states became totalitarian and decided to go in the direction of Fahrenheit or in the direction of Orwell and burn the books or ban them. It would have actually created more energy because then you would have created a forbidden fruit. I always joke around like historic, like the best way to get interest in a book is to ban it because then everyone wants to read it. You know, I, I think like the first movies that were rated X Okay, before there was like rated R, there was rated X. Like people, oh, that movie is like rated X. I got to read it. I, I think like a movie that was one of the first movies to be rated X was uh, the movie A Clockwork Orange. And, 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 and just as soon as it got that rating, people are like, oh, well, that's forbidden fruit. I need to taste that and see what that's all about. And I think that the states learned this lesson. I think they realized if you out, outwardly ban something, you're going to create a, uh, a desire for it. And we've kind of fallen into this direction of like, books are boring, you know, um, because you can get any book that you want virtually from the public library, even even, you know, people, oh, the public library is underfunded. And I say, nonsense, you can you can request just about any book from your public library, most books are there, even even books that just came out two weeks ago, you might have to wait a while uh, before you get your hands on it, but you can. But the way that we have these, you know, like the, the way that we have portrayed books, we, we've portrayed it in a very negative light, you know, like, oh, these people are bookish, they're uh, people who are into books are bookish, nerdy, weak, 
um, theor too theoretical. They're not street smart. So we, we have all of these ways of sort of um, training people to, to stay away from books and go through the, you know, and, and take their, gain their wisdom through like some IMAX movie with like five explosions. I'm going to be honest, like Optimus Prime is not going to teach you about life. He's just not. <laughs> um, and, 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 and like Hugsley's right. Like we have become a, a society of very, very cheap pleasures. And I want to, I want to know how we're getting here because I think that there are people who have broken out of this conditioning and I'm wondering why more people just can't do it. What, what's the roadblock that most people have in their head that is preventing them from breaking out of the conditioning and being like, hey, uh, I, I've seen enough Transformers. I, I need to go to my local library because I'm really interested in learning about uh, this thing that happened during the Roman Empire. When it comes to things like that, first of all, I think what you said is right on the money. And, but when it comes to things like why why it's harder for others to break out of it. I, would, I, I wonder if there's, you know, it'll be interesting if there's, you know, some sort of a study done on what I suspect is the case. Um, I suspect that it's the case that, you know, those who can easily break out of this had a couple of things. First of all, they had a good upbringing. The parents were, were, were very equipped to raise them. And so, you know, it was like, it's usually those who don't think that the world is all about them, you know, and that usually starts from a very young age. Kids think that they're the center of the universe. And when you grow up and you realize that the universe, the universe just really doesn't care a lick about you and you could get hit by a bus just for, you know, smiling at it the wrong way. <laughs> you know, it kind of, it kind of shuts you down a little bit. But if you grow up knowing that the universe doesn't care a lick about you, you're not the center of the universe. And that life goes on, you know, this too shall pass. It really does help because what you're saying, what you're building, the kind of mentality you're building is one that's not, you know, dependence on the applause and the approval of others. It's not a, one that's dependence on, you know, um, on being constantly recognized and constantly affirmed. It's one that's simply dependence on one's own choice of being. It's one, you know, it's like when you tell a kid, you know, when the kid falls down, you're like, you know, just get up and walk it off. You know, you're okay. Like you're changing the kid's opinion of pain. You're changing the kid's opinion. Um, um, see, uh, a friend of mine was actually mentioning this. He said that he was watching Lawrence of Arabia. There was a scene where um, I forget if it was Lawrence himself or someone else who had put his hand in the fire and in a fire, in a flame. And you're, kept it there for a good amount of time. And then somebody had asked this character saying, then the, the other character had tried to do it and failed. And he asked him, how did you do that? So doesn't it hurt you? He says, yes. I mean, the trick is not, he said, it does, it does hurt me. The, the trick is not minding that it hurt me. So the kid, you, you'd say, hey, you know, walk it off. And then people say, well, you know, that's just, just we're responsible and you're teaching the kids not to be aware of his body. It's like, okay, calm down. There's a bad way of doing this. Just like there's a, there's a, there's, there's a bad way of doing any good thing. So let's look at the, let's look at the best way to do the good thing, right? So you tell the kid to walk it off and it's like, what you're doing is you're changing his opinion or her, her opinion of pain. 
changing her opinion of what it means to fall down. Some kids, the, the parents' reaction of, oh my goodness, blah, 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 my goodness, and the crying and the crying and the kissing and the wondering, are you okay? Well, you've, 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 you've enforced to the kid that falling is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And when they fall, when they don't get that, there must be something wrong. So, but for the other kid, it's like, you know, I felt, okay, so what? They don't even notice it anymore because it's not registered as anything. They get up and they go. So um, I think it's sort of, I think it falls under this, under, under, under this category of our opinion of life. A lot of people who become, I suspect that a lot of people who become ap you know, apathetic in life are people who have a very, who often have a big um, opinion of themselves an opinion of their, their own experience. And they, they're, they're far more conscious of their experience in this life and um, how, life, how life is treating them. And when things, when thing, things would be going well in the sense of somebody looking from the outside inward, you know, sort of from the, sorry, yeah, from, the, from the outside into their life, so into, yeah. And it looks like it's going fine. But if life doesn't meet a certain criteria of, of their own expectation, and they don't have the mental capacity or even the, 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 yeah, not from the mental capacity, but even just the knowledge that it doesn't have to go my way. And it's okay that it doesn't have to go my way. Things become, things become very, very disturbing. And uh, I think that's where apathy begins to grow. But a mind that is free, a mind that cares not, none for these things is is can resist apathy very fairly quickly and fairly strongly wow so like most things in this world the ego obviously plays a very huge role in, in apathy and I, I i actually think people are more apathetic when they're doing well in life i've actually noticed i myself am more apathetic when i'm doing well in life because when when you're doing very well in this world it's so easy to just forget about the plight of others. Well, I, I'm, I'm all right. I earn a good income. I am driving this night. You know, like, so when people are doing very well with themselves, they're not forced to interact with the world in a more universal scale. They're like, I got my good job. I got my good paycheck. I got my supermodel wife or whatever, right? And they just think of the world through the narrow prism of their own success. The first step towards uh, developing that empathy and breaking out of your own ego is probably a good healthy dose of some suffering. Because when you start suffering, you start asking yourselves, well, what did I personally do wrong? Did I personally do this? And, and don't get me wrong, that's not a bad place to start. You should start looking inward and seeing all of the things that you've done wrong. And okay, I was a bit of a jerk at my last job or whatever, that's, that's really good. If the suffering continues for even longer though, you might also start looking outward at your wider community and saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, my neighbor also lost his job. Oh, wait a minute, uh, my friend from high school is also suffering at work right now, right? So I think, I think it, takes, it, it takes like something to kind of jolt us from our pacified state because that's what Hugsley talks about. He talks about being in a comfortable passive state of, of comfort, right? And that comfort prevents us from looking beyond our own ego because we're a very solutions-oriented species. 
and we like we like solutions. Sometimes the solution is you need to make a personal change with something about yourself. Other times, though, the society might be in need of some fixing, right? If 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 lots of people are going through that situation, you know, the whole the whole society needs to be fixed. And I'll give, I'll give you an example during the Great Depression, right? People tried their best to save themselves. They tried their best to take up any job that they could and make ends meet. But eventually there were just zero jobs. It just got so bad that there were just zero jobs. And that's when people started realizing, wait a minute, this isn't just me losing my job as a waiter. It's about an entire nation that has been thrusted into economic collapse. So do you think perhaps there needs to be a higher degree of suffering uh, to kind of awaken that side of people where they're starting to take note of what's going on with their friends and with their neighbors. And, and that kind of removes the the agency from the individual to the, the wider community. Yeah, I mean, yeah, being suffering does wake us up. I mean, that's what being quote unquote woke should really be about, but it's not really isn't. That's the uh, real definition of this is the real woke folk. <laughs> waking up and here's the thing about real woke folk is they don't really care about being woke if you're if you, the minute you say you're woke you're still definitely asleep you're still incredibly in fact you're in a deeper sleep than most people because what you're saying is by your proclamation that you are enlightened you have proven you are not enlightened because one of the criterias of the enlightened mind is the self, how you say, the lack of self-knowledge about its own enlightenments. When you're enlightened, it is others who say, truly he is enlightened. When you're rich, no one has to tell, you don't have to tell Jack Squat about being rich. Your Lamborghini speaks well for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So when you're awake, the wisdom that comes with being awake and the, the wisdom and the, the, the um, the knowledge, the understanding that comes with being awake is self-evidence. When you say it, you don't have it. But here's the thing about suffering is that it, um, you're right, it does wake us up. Nothing wakes us, nothing wakes a human being up like pain. It wakes us the hell up one way or the other in one category or another in one aspect of our life or another, but it wakes us the hell up. Unfortunately, many of us have to go through pain in order for us to wake up and be about something else other than ourselves. Usually when you wake up, we wake, when you say a person's woken up, it's from a dream, from a deep sleep, from a slumber, right? From a nap. Now, when you wake up, you leave your mind, you leave your own little world and you come out into the real world how things actually are reality. And so to wake up is to be about others. To wake up is to be about something other than yourself, really, not in this, you know, not in a fictional way, in a real way. But I, I like the people who are fictional too, because the people who are fictional make it so that we can better recognize the real thing, or should I say about better recognize, better appreciate the real thing. So, but there's another thing that wakes us up. Wisdom wakes us up. Solomon once wrote, says that much knowledge, much knowledge, much study is weariness to the flesh. 
notice that the more you know about this world, how the world actually works, the sadder and the more, how you say, heavy-hearted you are. Not depressed. There's a difference in how wisdom deals with that. It makes you understand the state of the, the state of mankind, the state of, the state of the world, the nature of mankind, where we're go, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going, inevitably going. There's a weight that comes with that. Wisdom wakes you up. Actual wisdom, being kissed by Sophia, is incredibly life changing. You will never be the same again. So. This is why, you know, they say, you know, a wise man learns from experience, no, learns from advice, not experience. So you tell a wise man, listen, here are the roads. I've taken this one. It sucked. Don't take it. You don't have to tell a wise man twice. He's not going down that road. But often we don't want to learn from wisdom. We want to learn from experience. And so what happens, end up happening is that we all have to, we end up having to suffer a lot. And so we suffer and then we wake up and we try to give advice and nobody takes it and then they suffer some more and it's a continuous cycle of suffering waking up speaking not being listened to and suffering you know and so forth and um, so i think that if, if a person can really dig their heels sink their teeth into wisdom into having a real desire to be wise and understanding they'll wake up far quicker and far more, how you say, alert than those who go through pain. But those who go through pain, it's a necessity. It's unfortunate, unfortunate necessity, but it is in fact a necessity. Because, and at the end of the day, when we, wake, when, 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 when we, do, when we are slapped out of sleep by pain, sometime down the road, we become very grateful. But those are the two things I found that, you know, really do destroy, if not totally destroy it, they do disturb and disturb it violently, apathy. I, I, I am just in awe of the cycle that you just described. And it, it kind of makes me think of this quote that the world must become a bit more uglier for us to become a bit more beautiful. <laughs> Meaning that we, we need to like, like, I think that your survival needs to be more at risk for you to waken up and become a much more beautiful, cognizant human being. And I'll give you an example of this. Many people in America, I'm just going to say this, they have no idea what the president does. They don't have no idea what Congress does. They know in names. They know, they know that like Joe Biden is president, right? That, that, they know that much, but they don't really pay attention to the inner workings of anything that goes on there. Why is that? Like, why is that? Well, you know, if it's not if it's if it's not broken, don't pay attention to it. So the average person just says to themselves, "Okay, I have my job, I have my whatever. I wake up at eight thirty. I go here. I do this. I do that. I don't really care what Congress does. I don't really care what the CIA does. Doesn't care. I don't care what the FBI does. I don't care what the president does. It doesn't." doesn't affect me. I just, I just need to get onto the Grand Central Expressway because there's less traffic on there. So they're just, they're just thinking in their head, what is it that I personally need to do to optimize my own existence? It doesn't matter what's going on in other countries. It doesn't matter what my own government is doing, as long as my personal slice of happiness remains undisturbed. Yeah. It's only when that happiness is disturbed, and not just disturbed for two weeks, but disturbed for an elongated 
period of time and you realize, crap, things aren't going to get better by my own efforts, by the fruit of my own efforts. So you have to get to a point where you can't personally improve your situation. That's where I think that the ears become receptive to wisdom. And I don't know, I think maybe there's only a few remarkable individuals. Like, let, let's take these two individuals, for example. Let's say you have somebody who has a high paying job and is very comfortable. You would have to be quite a remarkable human being to be receptive to wisdom, even when it doesn't personally affect you. You just have to be a very sharp, bright, astute, and curious person that you're, you're curious about the plight of what's going on in another country, even though when you don't have uh, any hair in the game. I think for 95% of us, we need that suffering and that personal attachment to those problems. Once we have a per once we forged a personal connection to that problem, then the ears become more open to wisdom because we see that our fate, you know, belongs in the hands of many others as well. I think that's that's what's required. And I think that we haven't had and I don't know if this is a good or positive, you know, this I don't know if this is a positive or negative thing. We may not have had such an experience since World War II, where everyone's fate was kind of tied in the same collective basket. I think World War II was probably the very last time where, you know, we were all in this together. Since World War II, it's kind of been like, well, you forge your own nature tree, you know, you forge your own path and your own trail, and you're responsible for yourself. I, I think that's what's made us so close-minded to wisdom, because I'm sure that in other countries where it's a lot rougher, it pays to be wise. Yeah, I would imagine so. I would imagine so. And, and you're right about how, you know, affluence, affluence does um, bring about apathy. Uh, unfortunately, not, not, now that, that person does exist. person who can be very affluent and yet incredibly wise. It's, I know it could be that they suffered many, many years ago as children or teenagers. And they suffered a, a great deal before they became who they were. But it also could be that they haven't really experienced much suffering, but their desire to understand has brought them to a place of wisdom where no need for suffering, at least suffering the way most men suffer. But affluence does it. When you have, and there is no need for anyone's help, when there's no need for anyone's opinion when there's no need for anything. He can also bring it to a place where, because it's, it, here's the thing, it's all about you still. It's all about you. Now yep. it's not, yep. it's not you looking, looking for the approval of others, but it is you, how you say, living your life for yourself. It is the approval of you towards you, which is actually, some might argue maybe worse. Because at least with the other person, with the person who's looking for the approval of others, there is still some involvement of the others. But you're in your own little world. And so you, you grow cold, you grow, you grow narrowed, and um, you lose sight of things that matter. And it's, it's, it's very interesting that human beings, that we would think that, okay, if we know this, but maybe we don't know this and we don't believe it to be true. Because I think actually our whole psychology is built on something else. Or should I say our psychological programs? We have a very me-centered world. Our commercials say, do what's best for you. 
right? Take a you time. We have a very, and we have a culture that's all about ourselves, literally, literally. That's strange, isn't it? A culture. It, it gets more frightening and scarier as time goes on. <laughs> where, where people are encouraged, in fact, not just encouraged, it's a virtue to look intently at yourself and what they call love yourself and be about yourself and whatever, everything is yourself. And we wonder why we are incredibly depressed. Why are we depressed? Why are we so unhappy? Why do we find everything we loved as children, we love no more, love no longer? The more we look at ourselves, feed ourselves, love ourselves, encourage, or how you say, um, deem ourselves to be the gods of our universe. We have looked upon ourselves in the mirror and says, wow, thou art like a god. Truly, I will worship thee. We have done this to ourselves and we think it would make us happy because of course it's obvious, right? It makes sense. Of course, if I give myself that wonderful gift I wanted to give to myself, myself would be happy. But it's very interesting how we, one might say created, others might say how we've evolved, doesn't matter how you look at it. The fact remains the fact that when you are about yourself, you stop being happy. You stop living. You start, you, it's like a slow and inward decay. Jealousy becomes rampant. Hatreds become rampant. Anger becomes rampant. Selfishness, rampant. Wickedness, rampant. Gossip, rampant. All, all kinds of madness become rampant. And, uh, but when we turn outwardly towards other people, when you give that gift to a friend, we're very, for one reason or the other, we explain it or not, some might say it's just, a, you know, we're herd, it's a herd mentality. And some of us are just, you know, when we, when we provide for the herd, where, you know, where our chemistry is built to reward us so that we do it often and more and more and more again. Sure, I don't care why it is. The fact that it is, it is, that's what happens. When we, when we focus and look towards our friends and our neighbors and our family, and even those we actually hate, have you ever done something nice for someone, who, someone you hate? It's a very confusing feeling. Yeah, I have problems doing that. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever do it, it's a very confusing feeling. Because all of a sudden, your mind, your body has this weird chemical reaction of joy. Your mind is still like, I don't like this guy. But your body's like euphoric. It's like, oh. You're, you're a much better guy than I am, my friend. <laughs> you are a much better man than I am. I'm like, I don't like you. I don't like the whiff of you. And <laughs> yes. But that's the thing is that most of those things come naturally to us, just like loving ourselves come naturally to us, being all about ourselves. All those things are natural to us. Is the things that are somewhat, is the things that are somewhat, you know, chaotic against our nature, chaotically against our nature, that seem to be somewhat beneficial for us, which is interesting. And the human condition is such a, it's not even a mystery, but it's a conundrum. This is, you know, this is my personal take on this, and and maybe maybe I'll be I'll be fully honest here. Maybe I'm just not at the at the highest enlightened level, but I tend to see this as an issue of we like to help others who we we like to help others who we see ourselves in. 
for a lot of people. And may maybe there's a 3% of people who go on a separate track. They're on the enlightened track of like, I help everybody no matter how different they, I, they are from me. But I think for most of us, for most of us, when we see someone else suffering, we have to be able to say, I could see that happening to me. I, I could see myself being thrusted into that circumstance. I'll give you a, an example of this, okay? Uh, about over a decade ago, there was something called Occupy Wall Street. Do you remember that movement, Kenny? I've heard of it, but no, I am not familiar with it. Okay. Yeah, so when Occupy Wall Street was happening, I actually went down there, and there were two types of people that were at, you know, there at that movement. The first were like anarchists with like green hair and tattoos and nose rings. And I was like, I, I don't really identify with these people all that much. You know, like I like they want to overthrow the government and do all sorts of other crazy stuff. And I'm like, all right, you know, uh, you know, maybe that sounds cool in your punk heavy metal, whatever band or something. <laughs> You know, you know, like I said, I, I just, for whatever reason, I wasn't able to personally connect and feel with those people. There was another set of people at Occupy Wall Street that were like wearing business suits. And, you know, there was this one gentleman who I talked to down there who said, I was an engineer, I worked in IT for eight years, and then I lost my job, and then I lost my place. For some reason, that guy resonated with me. When I talked to the guy in the business suit who was like, you know, unemployed for a year or two and lost his apartment and was living in the back of his car and had like a degree in engineering. I was like, that's me right there that I see myself in that situation. And therefore, I was able to open up my empathy and my compassion a bit more easily. Now, I'll, I'll agree with you. If I was truly enlightened, I would be able to empathize with the guy with green hair and the nose ring and 10 tattoos saying we should, you know, do this and that. But I can't help but identify with people who remind me of my own suffering and of my own struggles. And I think that as I get older, I empathize with more people because I get a little bit more creative in the permutations of how that could be me. So for example, when I was younger, it was maybe a little bit more difficult for me to empathize with, let's say, a sweatshop worker in India or China. Like it just, it was, it was a little bit more of a, of a leap for me to do mentally. As I get older, I'm able to make more connections and be like, what if I was born in that country under those circumstances? And I think that a lot of people have that problem because they see foreign countries and they look, they're thousands of miles away and they're just like, well, that's just how those people live. And it's harder. It's harder for people to see themselves being born in that foreign country and living that way. And I think it takes a lot of suffering and it takes a lot of imagination to be able to imagine what if I was born in this province of China to a parents that were farmers, and then I had to migrate all the way to, you know, the city and look for any job that I could find, right? It takes a lot more cognitive legwork to get to that level of imagination than some guy in a business suit who kind of looks like you and, you know, has like the same level of education as you and so forth. How does that sound? It's, there's perfectly there's, there's nothing wrong with only being able to gravitate towards people who are like you. That's far better than being able to gravitate towards nobody besides yourself. Who gives a damn? 
that's where we all start. We all start with, you know, people who are literally like us, our parents, our siblings, same DNA, same blood in our veins. That's where we start, right? And then we go to school and we meet friends, people who are who, are, who like the same action movies or same superheroes and the same same subjects or whatever, or the same girl in class or the same guy in class, whatever, you make friends there. Then there's, there's another commonality, right? And that kind of goes on over the years and we go to college and that kind of st is still the same thing. But what we start finding is that a lot of these people start of start they start of this kind of kind of start looking differently on the outside right so you can make friends with someone who doesn't look like you but is like you you know and so you have this you have a uh, as a as a black black young man you have an asian friend because you guys love anime you know just boom you hit it off he doesn't look a damn thing like you but he is the same person as you are you hit it off and so it changes and my point is that then there's going to come a time when you like someone who is who doesn't look like you and is not like you, usually the first person that happens to is our wives. <laughs> that's how it starts. The next thing you know, you're making more and more friends and so forth and onward. And my point is that it doesn't matter. We grow as human beings. But there's also like kind of judgments I like have in my head of like, how do you expect to get a job? Or do you think it was really wise to drop out of high school and, you know, do drugs or something? So like, how do you get past some of the cognitive, because there's like also these like cognitive, some of them are assumptions and some of them are grounded in reality. I think it's, it's, it's a mixture of both assumptions and also like when the guy tells you, yeah, I dropped out of school in ninth grade or something, you say to yourself, well, did you really utilize all of the options that you were afforded? So I think there's also this idea of like, how do you empathize with people that think, think differently than you do in terms of how they go about pursuing opportunities or how they go about making the best out of a bad situation? Because I actually think those are the even more difficult obstacles because it, it's, it's interesting because it gets harder to like empathize with people who are making certain types of choices and decisions that you yourself would not make. That I think is even like the, 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 the harder barrier than just like what you look like or your phenotype. Oh, no, that makes sense. I mean, I, here's the thing. I, I think it still applies in the sense of don't worry about it because you don't want to fake sincerity or empathy. If you can have some other common ground that you guys can relate on, awesome. But if you if if you think they made the wrong decision leaving high school at the ninth grade, if that's what you actually think, and that's what you actually think, because here's the thing about some people that you'll meet in life is that you guys can be really good friends and disagree about everything. You're just really good people. You enjoy each other. Like you'd rather have a beer with this person than anybody else. It's like you don't care about your disagreements. What's what's really interesting to both of you is the fact that you disagree on so much, but who the other person actually is. One of the things, another thing that's pretty that's helpful with things like this is less judgments and more descriptions. And I mean this in the sense of 
we human beings we were quick to make judgments and that's not necessarily a bad thing it's not there's a place for judgments but what we find is that where we ought to describe we end up attributing judgment hence good or bad evil not evil uh and so forth so you you somebody ask a movie say tell the person hey you know i saw you watched uh i heard you watched uh the you know the new uh, you know Arnold schwarzenegger movie like you know, what was it like? Oh, it was, a, it was a great movie. Great time. Loved it. Okay. Thank you. And a person says, oh, it was horrible. I hated it. All right. Sure. Like, that's not a place. Judgments are fine there, but it's not all. It's not, it's not I would say, the primary um, responsibility of the person who's seen the movie is the description. The describe, okay, why do you hate it? Or why do you like it? Describe the movie. It's not even about why. Just describe it to me. Describe what's going on. What when you saw it? Describe either your thoughts. Describe what you felt. Describe where it's turned. Where it's turned from um, interest to disinterest, because the whole film couldn't have been one great scenario to the next, or one horrible scenario to the next, and so forth. So the point is simply that we we we're so quick to judge. And we, very, we, we we describe rarely. We often describe when it's ourselves, but we rarely describe when it's others. Yeah, but overall, I think that these things come in time, little by little. Um, There's something very remarkably Zen about what you're saying, because you're interacting with people and there's no personalized judgment in that. And I wanna, I wanna uh, kind of paraphrase what you're saying and you tell me if I'm hot or cold. So, most people, when they talk with somebody else, and it, maybe it's a bad habit to do this, but I think this is the way most people's minds work. When they talk with somebody else, they immediately envision themselves in that person's circumstance. So let's just say I'm talking to someone who grew up in a poor district in India, and they tell me my parents abandoned a bit, you know, they abandoned me when I was eight years old. I was forced to work in a sweatshop, and that's why I'm, you know, here working in this restaurant. The person listening immediately pictures themselves at eight years old having no parents and doing this. And then they say to themselves one of two things like, yeah, I would probably be like this guy if I grew up in those set of circumstances or no, I would have done it differently and, and, and so forth. So we're constantly envisioning ourselves in other people's predicament and then applying our personal personality to those set of circumstances. So if you, let's say, have someone who grew up in a great household and went to the same high school as you, and they ended up becoming a drug addict, you're going to say to yourself, dude, you grew up, you had wonderful parents. We went to the same high school. We had the same algebra teacher. I didn't become a drug addict. Why did you become a drug addict? Because we're making that like personalized judgment of like, if I was born in your situation, I would not have become a drug addict. So we're, we're constantly inserting ourselves into other people's story. What you're suggesting is you become like a Zen master and you're just, you're just, you're just taking in like, ah, oh, okay. So your father did this. Okay. And then, and then you got hooked in with the bad crowd when you were 13. Okay. And you're in this perfect state of non-judgment. There's no, there's no point where you're saying, I would have done this, I would have done that, or I would have avoided that crowd altogether. That's something I, I like it. I like what you're saying. Damn, is that difficult to achieve, my friend. I, that is, that's a very high bar of, of understanding. 
No, it is not an easy thing to do, and but it is possible. And it just, it's little by little, it's not, and I don't know that, I wouldn't say that it's, you know, I don't know that it's actually, um, I just think that it's helpful because we see things, we start to see things clearly and we don't avoid things because they look like what we think is bad. You have to wait and see, is it actually bad? What is actual badness? And is this actual badness? Or does it just look bad and therefore it is bad, you know? So when we describe things, I mean, you'd be surprised when you ask someone to describe a tree. They have no idea how to describe a tree. Well, you know, the bark thing on the, it's, it's tall, it has leaves. Well, what the hell's a leaf, man? <laughs> you know? Um, it's, um, my point is simply, I think that it's very helpful. It, it retools the way our minds work. And it um, it helps us, how you say, take more interest in things. We 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 tend to see things more from a place of um, wonder, not wonder in a sense. Ah, wonder, but I just wonder. I think it's I think it's helpful. I won't. I don't want to stretch it on too much. It's just helpful. Hey, there is there is a dark side to your theory though and I, I want you to hear this okay I, 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 I got I got believe me I'm filled with these caveats and loopholes that's that's how my mind works uh, okay? cynic. <laughs> Let, let's say let's say you meet a dude okay you meet a dude All right. and he ends up killing his parents All right. and he tells you yeah you know my my dad he just didn't spend enough time with me or he didn't show me enough love he never hit me he never did anything crazy like that but he just i just didn't connect with my parents and i decided to murder them mm -hmm. do you remain like a zen master and say i understand my son that is your personalized journey and there's no judgment at all like so th this is where it crosses a line of where you're like, how can you be a Zen master if some dude is telling you he murdered his parents? Because, you know, so like there comes a point, there also comes a point of like, you do need to weigh judgment on certain individuals because their behavior has now, their their behavior now merits judgment, right? So like, yeah. how, how, like, where do you draw the line with stuff like that? Well, you know, if you remember, if you remember, <laughs> remember, I'm not the one who called it being a Zen master, you were. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. I'm not saying that judgments are not important. I'm saying there's a place for judgments. And you must have your definition of what good and bad is. You must have those. And you must ask yourself questions about what criteria, what you're seeing. Look at what you're seeing with accurate eyes, not with fearful eyes. Because the way we make judgments quickly, often because we're scared, we think, or we think we're we think we're dumb. We're usually not. Um or that's just the way we've been doing it most of our lives. So um, when you're dealing with someone like that, it's a matter, I mean, sure, it's even the description of what he's doing. When, he when you describe what this young man did, listen to this. This young man got a gun, went to his father's home, and he shot the father in the face. You ask the young man, why did you do that? Well, you see that we haven't said. Here's why the the, the 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 description is important and the the question is important, because if we manage it, well, I went, I got a gun, went to my father's room, and shot him in the face, dude. That you're a horrible, terrible human being. 
you tell them your resume is gone. All right? You stop them. And so yeah, you've made your judgments, you stop them. Okay. And it turns out this guy, um, and it turned out there was a whole such different situation and the father himself had a gun. And so my point is simply, we, we follow on, we describe. We're not, we're not afraid and we're not ready to pounce on anybody yet. We're just trying to see. We're trying to see without, uh, without the cloudiness of our emotions and without the, um, without the rashness of our thinking. Brashness, excuse me. And so, says why? Why did you why did you do that? So well, because I didn't think, I didn't believe that my father loved me enough and did not care for me enough, and therefore I decided to shoot him in the face. So okay, so let me get this straight. You thought that your father was not loving, and you thought that he was not kind. He was not. Let's just say, wasn't a kind, very kind man to you, and at least according to you, not enough. And you decided that the best way to remedy that was to get a gun and go to his home and shoot him. Says yes. Okay. Well, if you look at it, let's just say, now I'm not saying that people should look at it this way. I'm just trying to show you how it how it could work. So okay, let's look at the laws of the land. The laws of the land say that you shouldn't murder anybody, right? So according to the law, he's done something wrong already, period. So he's wrong according to the law. Done. The category of the law has taken care of him. He should go to prison. If the law says he should die for his die for his crimes, he should die for his crimes. Because according to the law of the land, that's what's going on. Then, if you're a religious mind, if you're religious minded or more moral minded person, and you have a good definition of what murder is, what bad, and if murder is bad according to you, and so forth, because it gets very interesting with people's minds. So it's, it's a matter of okay, and you thought that justly that a bullet in the face was the adequate recompense for a lack of well done son here and there as you were growing up. That's, so you, you equate that with the same, you equate that that was the right punishment for this, according to you, what this crime was. So yeah, so your father never physically hit you, never physically, never put, never shot you with a gun. He only, how you say, didn't affirm you as a young man growing up. And this is how you repay him for what he, what he did. No, the punishment does not equate the crime. Let's just say that you, right? If you thought that was a crime, the punishment does not equate the crime. And you can, you can, say, you can say, okay, well, what if he's living in his own little world where all crimes to him are taken care of by the barrel of a gun. Wait, I was say, okay, fine. But he needs to know that he's living in an actual world where his laws don't supersede actual laws. And so, and so, yeah, I, you, well, personally, I'd say, yeah, he's done a bad thing. He's done a bad thing. It doesn't matter if he thinks it's bad or not, because I'm an individual who lives under, I live under God and I live under my country and I live under the, you know, my own moral obligations to my country, my family, my friends and so forth. And I need to have definitions of what good and bad is according that lines up with these things. And so he's done something bad according to the law and he's done something bad according to, according to just, just recompense, eye for an eye tooth for a tooth. That's just so you're looking at it according to that kind of moral, that moral law, right? And then when it comes to love, the law of love, he's violated the law of love. 
and so he's done a bad thing. But but the have to have the courtesy and should I say the strength or the it's not even strength. Some might say it's foolishness, but to have to be able to listen to him accurately, so that you can make and know why you're making that judgment against what he's done, and not just throwing it at, throwing it throwing a judgment at him. You know, five minutes into the conversation, I think it's very helpful. No, I, I think that's sound advice. And perhaps maybe I myself am too quick to judgment. It, it kind of reminds me of a quote uh, from Tolstoy, like uh, the man who understands everything forgives everything. And I don't know how I actually feel about that quote. Uh, I actually might disagree with Tolstoy on that just a bit because I, I, I like your advice that let's say you're talking to a guy who murdered his parents or did something completely egregious or something bad. And, and let's say you take three hours and you ask high level lawyer-esque detailed questions and you get his motivations, you get the circumstances and you get all of this, this, that, and the other thing down. I still think it's possible to not empathize with that person or not show them compassion because the, and again, you've listened to them for three hours or four hours and you heard their story in great detail. I think that it's wise to have compassion for people, but to be selective in who you're showing compassion to. And the reason I say that is because Compassion, I think, is a finite resource. I don't think it's like Tolstoy says, it's an infinite resource where I, I have just as much compassion for the poor orphan that was beaten as a child as for the serial killer. And I think that's actually a mistake of modern society is that we try and show compassion to everybody and we don't actually view the details as to why one group of people might be more deserving of our compassion than others. And I can't get to that level where I'm like, okay, the, the, the orphan that was beaten as a kid and then worked his way through college and then became a CEO of a company, like, like the compassion that I have for that person is going to be quite different than the compassion or lack of compassion that I would have for a serial killer, even if I listen to them for 10 hours or 12 hours or 50 hours. It's just, it, it's just a point where I'm like, no, dude. You shouldn't have done that. And any reasonable person that was born into your set of circumstances would not have acted that way. So I'm wondering, is that is that wrong, Kenny? Is that wrong to just have that be your final landing place or your final resting place when it comes to human understanding and empathy? No, I mean, how can I say that's wrong? I think it's honest. You can't have compassion. You can't have compassion. And what I think we have in this world is not compassion. I think we have a very fake compassion, a pseudo compassion. We have a, we have an, um, we have the kind of compassion that one has for a cereal box. It's not, it's an emotion we feel because we're about to benefit from it. We're about to, and we're about to enjoy a nice, a nice bowl of cocoa puffs. The compassion that that Tolstoy, I believe, is talking about, which I do believe is a real thing, but it's incredibly rare and hard to find. That kind of compassion, true compassion, one doesn't have to generate it. You will feel it, whether you like it or not. You watch um, Le Mezrab or read it, and you feel compassion towards um, Jean Valjean, 
because you see all his suffering. You don't, you don't, the author doesn't have sin. And this is where you feel compassion. And you don't have to tell yourself, I should be feeling compassion for this man. Therefore, now I will be compassionate. No, you feel it naturally when you hear the story, when you see what is going on. Our response, our emotional response towards what we have observed or what we've heard or what we've encountered is if it's compassion, then there's really nothing we can do about it. The point is simply, no, it's not wrong that you don't feel compassion for the murderer, for the serial killer. Now, don't fault anybody who does as being crazy. They're not crazy. They just have, how you say, they have a difference on a different background, first of all, a different, nature, a different view of the nature of the universe and a different view of that person. So if they have compassion for the man who, I mean, I, I think it was last week I told you about the Muslim man who had forgiven the killer of his son, forgave him. The person who pulled the trigger on his own son, this Muslim hugged him and told him, I forgive you, and quote, right there, right there. They were, they were both in tears together. I don't know that many people can do that, but he was capable of doing that. Now, for those who don't, who can't do that, it makes sense. It's fine because it's natural. Someone has shot your son, taken things away from you, the murderer or the thief. You feel no compassion towards them. You're the, you are the object of, um, of, of, of the offense, right? You, 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 you're the victim of the situation, which I despise that word, but it's, I think it works here. <laughs> and so why... You're the one who people should be compassionate towards, you know, and which makes sense. So my, my point is, no, I don't think it's a bad thing. Absolutely not. It makes sense. It's, 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 if you're, if you're, if you, if you jump into water, into a pool of water, you're going to get wet. If you encounter someone who has brutally murdered and or raped other people, you're not going to say, well, I, I just think, I just think that we should give them a, you know, pat on the back and a slap on the wrist. No, you're going to say uh, he should basically either die or burn in, or die in prison. Um, but for those who can, for those who can look at them in genuine love and compassion, then that's awesome too. So I would say, yeah, it's not bad, but one, but the other way is better. We always think of things as good or bad, but we know, but there, it's not just, it's life is not that simple. There's good, there's better. There's best, there's even better than best, <laughs> which I'd like to describe my wife as. I, I, I'm hearing what you're saying and I'm, I'm, I'm actually, it's hard. It's, it's actually, there's actually a cog, there's a cognitive block in my own head right now. Because when we talk about Jean Valjean, I Jean think <laughs> when we talk about him and, and stealing a loaf of bread, I think he passes what I would call the reasonable person test. Like, okay, if I was thrown into that situation, if any reasonable man was thrown into that situation, they may have acted the same, the same way. It's like, it's like, I've heard stories where like, okay, I'll give you an example of this. 
cannibalism is usually an egregious crime, right? Like there's usually an unforgivable crime, but then you hear these stories, oh, well, the plane went down and we were all starving to death and this person was about to die and I decided to start gnawing on their leg, <laughs> right? A little nibble on the leg, nibble right? And, right? And like, like because of the set of circumstances that surrounds that particular situation, something as egregious as cannibalism, I'm not saying it's fully absolved, but it enters the domain of reasonable person territory because the circumstances of, of that particular situation were just so crazy and egregious. Okay. I, I do think that certain individuals far exceed the boundaries of the reasonable man test where it's like, no, you're just straight up crazy or no, you're, you're just, you're too far gone. And my, my fear is that if we show those people too much compassion, we start normalizing evil. And, and, and th- th- this is my fear is that like, when we get to that point of like, I understand you serial killer, let me give you a hug. Um, you know, there's this film, um, I don't know if you ever saw it. I, I think it was, it was a Batman animated short feature. And in this, I forgot the name. I, I just can't think of it right now. It, it deals with Batman, but um, in this, in this, film, it's by Frank Miller. Um, yeah. I, you know, um, and in this scene, there's this psychiatrist who actually empathizes with the Joker, yeah. and he says the Joker is just simply a misunderstood individual, and the, the Batman is a, a nasty yeah. and you know, like this guy is making. Yeah, right. And like, like, it's like, it's like your, it's like your, your, your level of empathy is, is too much. And what's happening is that you're actually normalizing and pardoning and, and, and making evil acceptable. This is, this is where I think there's a danger because like, you don't want to be that psychiatrist that's like making excuses for the Joker and be like, well, this Joker is clearly a confused individual and a byproduct of our modern society. And it's like, no, the guy is a serial killer. You need to put him away forever and just take care of him that's that's where i that's where i see the danger in extending too much compassion towards just people who are plain old evil and if you do that you also allow them like i think one of the uh the moral the moral questions of batman is that he keeps allowing the joker to live and every time he does that the joker kills another hundred people so by by batman being compassionate to the joker he's actually killing another hundred people over and over and over and over and over again so that's where i'm kind of drawing the line here yeah but and i see your points but i think I don't think that that's compassion. What that what the psychiatrist was going through was not compassion. It was infatuation, and I think that compassion operates very differently. Compassion doesn't say that you're absolved of your crimes. Most of the time, it doesn't. Like the man who forgave and had compassion on that young man, that young man was still going to prison. He just was. Compassion or no compassion, your crime is not how you say the punishment from your crime is. You're still going to face it. Um, so, so let me just ask you one question about that. Why? So before you forgive somebody, why can't you forgive them after they've served their punishment? Why, why does the forgiveness happen prior to the punishment? Because I feel like, I feel like there's something not 100% authentic about that. Because if you go up to a serial killer and give them a hug and say, I forgive you now enjoy the next 30 years in prison. 
I, I kind of feel like there's something mentally missing there. Whereas maybe the right thing to do is, you know, have, you know, enact the punishment first, the person spends 30 years, then you give them a hug and invite them over for tea and crumpets. And you're like, okay, I forgive you that you killed my son. There's just, there's something there because in my head, when mm -hmm. I think of forgiveness, I think of, okay, I'm off the hook and I'm absolved from my, from my crime. So I, 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 I guess it's more of a sequencing problem that I have, where I think if you forgive somebody, it should be after they've already served their punishment. Well, it's, yeah, I can understand that too, but it's like saying, you know, before you love someone, they have to do the thing that's lovable. So that, but that's not always the case in the sense that we can love people before they become lovable to us. So we can forgive people before they've even apologized to us. Because here's the thing about forgiveness, and I think maybe someday we should talk about it because forgiveness is a very interesting thing. It's, I think it's a, I think it, I think it's a very interesting topic. Forgiveness is one of those things. Like um, I remember there was a book I read once or heard in a quote or quotes, where there was a quote. I forget who it was written, said by. I think it was Mahatma Gandhi, but I'm not sure. So. Nobody quote me on this. It says anger is like holding on to a piece of burning coal, waiting, looking for someone to throw it at, or waiting for someone to throw it at. Forgiveness is um, how you say the opposite of bitterness, holding on to something. Human beings, we like to think that we are completely just creatures, that we can hold, we can hold the idea of crime and punishment simply in a matter of categories of just versus unjust and wait patiently for the person to go through years of so forth and then forgive them and give them the due forgiveness. That is not the case. Human beings, we have what we call um, very powerful and very irrational and erratic emotions where often even a police officer would not be allowed to work a case because of the closeness if, if he or she has some closeness towards the case, because anything can happen. They could prefer justice. They could tamper with evidence just to make things go their way and so forth, if there is some connection. And these are people who are here for the sake of law and order, right? So I think humans, humans on our states of bitterness, it's not just our, our states of grief, grief is often, often turns into bitterness very quickly. You grieve your loss and you're bitter and angry and frustrated against that which took, um, took that from you, took, caused a loss, right? It's a very painful thing. It, it's heavy on the heart. I don't know if you've ever met a person who's been carrying bitterness uh, concerning their father or their mother or brother and sister for many years. It's incredibly grotesque. And it, it not only does it hurt us, but it causes us to hurt other people. Often when we forgive people, it's so that our hearts can be set free from that. Our emotions can let go of that. And often what you have to, excuse me, and often it takes, it takes it's not just, for some people, it's a one-time thing. It's like, I forgive you. Others, it takes, it's, it's, it takes a good amount of energy and work to let go of the pain that others have caused you not just for their sake, because when somebody, the right person, not all the time, some people don't care a lick whether you forgive them or not. Some people, it does matter to them that they are forgiven so that their conscience and their hearts can be set free as well. But I would say that in spite of them, it is also for our benefits. 
because to carry the weights of the pain, if you remember, I don't know if you can, if you have any thought of someone right now who's hurt you, who's pained you in the past, when you think of their faces, you still feel that, that wince, your heart still kind of, your chest, <laughs> you know? Now, like, how the hell, as a human being, as a free agent in society, do you carry that around like some ball and chain? Mm. And when you think of another person's face, you you have a physical reaction to it, him or her. That's just not healthy, bruv, you know? And so forgiveness is super important because it's part of this, it's part of the seeing things clearly. It's part of it's part of interacting with life as best as life can in, be interacted with or interact, yeah. And I think that interacting with life, interacting in life and with life, with anger and bitterness and things and holding on to things that others have caused you. It can be very troubling for your heart and for your future. Okay. I I think we're delving into another topic and we're almost at the hour um, mark, but I want to say this, this thing about forgiveness and and maybe this is an entirely different podcast altogether. I agree with the first part of what you said, that if you hold on to the bitterness, you will become rotten inside. I agree with you. It, it, It is a ball and chain. It is a prison. It is a weight. It's a, it's a level of toxicity that lives with you. However, if you forgive too easily, then that person starts learning that they can get away with anything. And, and a good example of this is you have a wife, you have a husband. Husband cheats on the wife. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. And, and the behavior the behavior just keeps going on and on and on and on because this man is now being conditioned to learn that he can act a certain way and that he will be met with instant hugs and forgiveness. So you might, and again, I I see your point that the person who's withholding the forgiveness is living with toxicity, but we also have a responsibility to condition the offender to not do that negative behavior and that there will be consequences to their actions, right? And I think that maybe that woman needs to hold on to some bitterness and be like, no, this happened once, this happened twice, you're out, we're done. I'm, we're getting it. Amen, brother. You know, like, yeah, yes. I mean, like, like at a certain mm-hmm. point, like at a, because you're doing that man a disservice because you're conditioning and you're teaching that man that you can cheat on your wife unlimited mm-hmm. amount of times and that the, that room and that bed will always be open back. She'll always take you back. That's unhealthy. And I think we have, we, we like, I, I think one thing that we, we as human need, we as humans need boundaries. Boundaries are extremely important. So I agree with you that withholding forgiveness is toxic, but at the same time, you also have a responsibility to condition that person out of their negative behavior. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I totally agree with you um, because I think that's this, we're coming into a place of, like our last conversation, a place of nuance and a place of things that I don't even know that I totally know how to express or even should. But I will say this about true forgiveness is, is that it never counts once once a person is truly forgiven, it never counts or holds the, the previous mistake against that person or the previous sin or the previous um, um, action or folly, whatever it is, it never holds it because it is forgiven. It is forgiven. It is as though you did not do it to me. It is forgiven. It is let go of. We hold it not against you any longer. The shackles are removed. That which I hold, I held, I had claim to you 
um, that which are that, um, on that which I held claim unto you, I have let you go, which means you're a free man, which means that when, if and when you mess me up again, if you do, it is the first one. It is the one that has happened, not the previous one. This is the one we're dealing with right now, because the first one, though I had claim, I could have held my claim on you. I didn't hold it. So it, it gets into a place of very interesting human interactions where you're right. There is a place, as with many things, there is a place where people can be taken advantage of and harm can be done to people. Absolutely. But that's everything in life. There is no place in this world where there is nothing that nothing you can do, no act of kindness, no act of love, no act of goodness that cannot and will not be taken advantage of. It's just not possible. When you're dealing with people who are both good and bad, right and wrong, people who are kind and unkind, people who will as easily give you $100 as slit your throat. There is, there is no safe place for the person who wants to do good in this world. They will come for you and they will take everything that they can take from you. It's the cost. It is the cost of, um, of kindness, of goodness, of love. I think that we're we're diving into another topic, and I think that's excellent. This is what I propose. I think we should table our conversation for next week, and next week we're going to talk about accountability because I think what we're talking about falls under the umbrella of accountability and how how we're holding individuals accountable. Should we hold individuals accountable? And there's a lot of grayness. There's a lot of nuance in that discussion. So let's do it next week. Accountability. Sound good? Lovely. Sounds good. All right, my friend. Take care. This concludes the 162nd episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod.